Workforce Health Engagement, Episode 4, Does It Work? An Epidemiologist's Surprising Answer About Wellness and Other Workforce Health Engagement, featuring Dr. Thomas Wilson. Welcome to Workforce Health Engagement, a show exploring strategies to improve your employees' health and productivity and to protect your bottom line. Join us as industry experts discuss how to engage employees in population health management, wellness, and healthcare consumerism. This is a special series by the producers of the top-rated podcast, Engaging Leader. And now, with 20 years of experience as a communication consultant to Fortune 500 companies, helping engage hundreds of thousands of employees, here's your host, Jesse Leahy. Welcome to the show, Engagers. It seems common sense that investing in wellness and other workforce health strategies would be worth all the money and effort that employers are putting into them these days. But what is the actual evidence that there's a return on investment? It's wise to have a certain amount of skepticism about the vague promises we hear from various program vendors. Also important, different employers have different situations and needs. How do you determine if the strategies you're employing are making a positive difference for your organization. To investigate these questions, I recently conducted a face-to-face interview with Dr. Thomas Wilson, a consulting epidemiologist who I've known and worked with for several years while helping to implement, measure, and refine workforce health engagement strategies. At the beginning of this recorded conversation, I provide an introduction to Dr. Wilson, so let's go ahead and roll the tape now. Does wellness work? Well, to help me address that today is Dr. Tom Wilson. He's an epidemiologist and the founder of Trajectory Healthcare based in Cincinnati. Dr. Wilson is also co-founder and board chair of the nonprofit Population Health Impact Institute. He's a former faculty member of Columbia University and since 1996 has been a consultant to the private sector. Dr. Wilson, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Jesse. Thanks for having me. Dr. Wilson, why you're an epidemiologist? Why are you in such demand on this topic of wellness? Why do companies want to talk to an epidemiologist about corporate wellness programs? Well, epidemiology evolved in the 19th century as a reaction to uh, lots of people getting sick from ep- from cholera and dysentery and things, and uh, they couldn't figure out what the cause was. So they looked at statistics and numbers and found relationships between um, bad water and disease and some of the interventions they didn't know germ theory of disease at the time but some of the uh, uh, more innovative thinkers said let's put a lock on the pump that seems to be uh, causing related to the, the epidemic and suddenly the disease disappears so what an epidemiologist does is look at the p- pattern of disease looking for epidemics and then looks at the statistics and the numbers of populations. See, is there something related to uh, this epidemic that we could address? And, and then if we do address it, can we measure to see how well it works? Because ultimately, what we want as epidemiologists is uh, a population that has optimal health. And you know what a physician wants is an individual with optimal health. And mm-hmm. the two intersect, obviously. But you know we're interested in the in the broader impact to a population, which is why corporations and governments are very interested in the services of epidemiologists, because they they care about the individual, but they are managing a bunch of people, and they and just like managing machines or an assembly line or whatever, they have to look at metrics. And that's how, and they manage using the metrics. So they need metrics in the healthcare field just as much as they do in you know, manufacturing cars or computers or whatever. Often, a company will hire you, retain you, and your firm to come in and evaluate their corporate wellness program and determine what's working, what's not working. But before you get into that level of detail, on the whole, does corporate wellness work? That's a, that's a very good question. I think to answer it, we have to de- decide, we have to determine what, uh, what its objective is. And, because we can't really measure 
the impact of something unless we know what the something is supposed to do. And maybe we might say, well, obviously a wellness program is supposed to improve wellness. Mm-hmm. And I would say, well, okay, how do we define that? What, what, what is that? What is wellness? I mean, from a, from a metric standpoint, um, you know, it's not necessarily easy. To, and what I think uh, has happened in the last five or six years is there are vendors and health plans that design, quote, wellness programs, and uh, you know, they measure health risk, they measure seatbelt use, tobacco use, blood pressure, cholesterol, and uh, among their workers, and their workers are not necessarily sick, so it's an outreach kind of program, and, and to say what's, what, what can people do to improve their health, so they measure these things, and then because it costs money to do that, they are always they're trying to show a return on the on their investment, and this is where it, it gets challenging, because first of all, people that are well generally don't cost very much money in a healthcare system. You know, the, most of our healthcare dollars are spent obviously on sick people. So if you're well and you want to, you know, and you say I'm going to measure the level of, of uh, cost before and after a wellness program, and but if you're only getting, quote, well people in the program, the costs are going to be pretty minimal before. And mm-hmm. probably even if nothing happens, they're going to be pretty minimal afterwards. So it's a real challenge to, um, to do a before-after kind of assessment of wellness. So what you really need to do, in my opinion, is say what is the trajectory or what is the expected um, natural history of this population in terms of getting sick. Because it only costs money when you get sick. So how many people in an average population, let's say it's, it's your company, there's a thousand workers, how many actually get sick? And, it, and by measuring their blood pressure today, can we prevent some of them from getting sick next year? Well, that's, that's a tough one. Uh, most people that, even if they have high blood pressure today, they're not going to get really very sick next year. Some of them will, but... A lot of them will not. So you got to sort of, you got to have a realistic expectation of what the healthcare burden is going to be in the future, and that's assuming that that healthcare burden is the thing you're trying to impact. But frankly, I think in this business, there's a lot of things implicitly that actually people are trying to impact that have very little to do with healthcare. Like what? Well, for example, I think. Uh, I mean, I see in my practice, uh, health uh, wellness is is the um, it's the pile on effect. It's the soup du jour. You know, everybody has to have one, have a program. And so, what's the goal of the program? In many cases, the goal of the program is to have a program. <laughs> and so, if we want to measure the effect of that program, and and you you're the HR guy, and you say, well, my goal was to have a program, and I say, do you have a program? And you say yes, and I say, well, you're successful, right? <laughs> right? You have a program. Now, of course, people want more than that. And so I think uh, in some of the early adopters in wellness uh, and you know, advertising that they have a wellness program or they have a, a free gym membership or whatever, free tobacco cessation products or whatever, they may attract an employee who likes the fact that they have that. They, this employee wants to work with people who are interested in staying fit and healthy. And so by doing that, you know, what's the outcome now of the wellness program? It's recruitment and perhaps retention of employees. I mean, even if it has zero impact on health care, it, it has value. And I think you know, uh, innovative employers uh, and their agents are saying, hey, we want to... Uh, that's what, well, that's what we want our wellness program for, to impact recruitment and retention. Well, now we can design a uh, study to assess that. Others may say, well, I think if people are more healthy, they will be more productive at work. They won't, they, they won't take off sick time. Uh, and when they're at work, they'll be more alert and more present. In fact, there's, they call it you know, there's absenteeism, which is when you take off time from work, and there's presenteeism when you don't take time off from work, but you're kind of 
right? Mm-hmm. Kind of disengaged. Yeah, disengaged. And so if you're healthier, that disengagement, that presenteeism, presentism, presentism, is going to be minimal. And so you'll be more productive. And, and that's a very legitimate thing to measure. It, it may have nothing to do with your health care costs, but it's totally legitimate. Well, most of our listeners are going to have somewhere in their top objectives managing health care costs. I mean, right. costs are just continue to spiral upwards. And early in 2013, the RAND Corporation delivered their congressionally mandated report to the Department of Labor that had some rather sobering statistics from their perspective on whether corporate wellness programs were actually making an impact in, in the cost realm. Do, is it, how do you determine? How can you measure the the, the effectiveness from a cost? Well, I, yeah, well, they're they're made. I know that report. They are measuring it from the health, the cost perspective, and like how, what percent of the, how much weight was lost and how much cholesterol was lowered and so forth. And it was pretty minimal uh, impact. But they are what they're doing is measuring the current state of wellness. And, and I, you know, I could almost guess that's what you, the sort of results you would have gotten because, you know, that's a long haul. I mean, you look at, like, the Framingham, the famous Framingham heart disease uh, program started in 1949, and they find factors that are, fill, that are associated with later heart disease. But they have a five-year risk, 10-year risk, 20-year risk. And it's a population risk. They say, well, we'll measure your risk factors, cholesterol, smoking, et cetera, blood pressure. Uh, they say your 10-year risk is 10%, whereas most people your age, it's 2%. Well, 10%, that only, that, if that's true, um, that means out of 100 people, 10 of them in 10 years are going to have a heart issue. 10 years is a long time. And a lot, a lot of employees don't are not at the same employer for ten years. Right. So it's it's tough to show big, big value. I mean, it, it, it just um, hypothetically from just these simple wellness programs. But the way I look at wellness is a, it's a much bigger, bigger idea than the way it's currently um, implemented. Mm-hmm. I mean, in 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 a they call it the public health model. No matter where a population is along the spectrum of, of health, of birth to death, the natural progression of life, you know, things happen. You do get sick, and then you get well. And some people don't get well, but it, there's a progression. And uh, in, in these, it's called the prevention model. Wherever you are along that perspective, there are things typically that can be done to slow your probability of moving for, down the line to a less healthy state or sometimes even cure the disease so you know so the whole idea of that that model wherever somebody even if somebody had a stroke they're obviously not well but you can do prevention activities like getting them on medication and getting them working out or whatever that is in my mind is a wellness program Mm-hmm. But it's tip, it's not really. It's I think the reason it's not considered that is because that kind of big pers- perspective per, uh, uh, involves a lot more people than just a wellness vendor, because you've got to uh, you know get the doctors involved and, and the hospitals and and so all these people are trying to influence let's say it's stroke patients. To prevent them from going to have the next stroke or from dying or having a heart attack or whatever, and those to me are wellness activities, but that they're not generally considered wellness activities. I mean, part of the issue is that we in America, a lot of the pub, uh, health initiatives are private sector initiatives, and people uh, in the private sector vendors want to be paid for their services, so. If they say, well, we're going to do a service, but we have to share our, you know, there's f- 15 other entities that are, have to be involved. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a very challenging issue. Uh, if 
you have to get the doctors and the hospitals and the wellness vendors and the health plans all working together in a coordinated fashion. You know, well, God, how do you divvy up the money? How do you charge it all out? Mm-hmm. And uh, but this is, you know, by the way, this is where we're going. I mean, the whole healthcare industry is going to move. I say in the next ten years, more to, uh, you know, like uh, David Nash, the dean of uh, Jeff- Thomas Jefferson's uh, Public Population Health School in Philadelphia. He says he's a physician. He says, "Hey, docs, no outcome, no income." So. You know, to wellness programs, you know, surgery programs, case management, all of these things, they are going to have to show their value at some level. And the first thing that, that you know, they, that they, they had an influence on an outcome, if it's recruitment or retention, if it's health care costs, if it's worker productivity, you know, whatever it is, they have, they're going to have to um, have a compelling argument that the money that was spent to bring this program in had an effect and there was a return on investment. So when you think about some of the common wellness programs that employers implement, are there any surprises in terms of what works and what doesn't? Well, I actually am doing did a, did a uh, assessment of a um, it's a Medicare in a Medicare population they had uh, a unique um, program uh, to I don't want to reveal confidences that's why I'm pausing here but they had a program that uh, where the Medicare members if they were referred by a physical therapist or a doctor could get free access to this special fitness center which was a combination of a gym, basically, and a quasi-clinic. So they would measure blood pressure and stuff, and, you know, and they would design a, uh, a program specific to the person. And in our early analysis, we actually saw reduction in health care costs hmm. in the group of people that, 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 were, that joined the program, and relative to a reference group. I mean, not a huge improvement, not a huge thing, but, and, you know, it's, it's, so that, I was surprised. But the more I thought about it, I said, God, that is so strange. But, because most, I don't really see that impact in fitness centers, but this was a unique one in that they were not just um, convincing the well people to come to the fitness center, they were convincing the sick people to come to the fitness center. Mm-hmm. So thinking about it right now, they are doing what I have I just proposed, where you know wellness can be a wonderful activity for people that are sick. In fact, you, you might get a, a, a higher return on investment uh, than you would in just twenty year olds who work out or whatever. So. That was a, uh, a pleasant surprise, and but again, the more I thought about it, it wasn't as much of a surprise. As, but you know, what I like to do is let the let the re, we set up the models for evaluation, and I love to be surprised. You know, you have a hypothesis and you think this is going to happen or whatever, and uh, it's not exactly the way you thought it was, and it's 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 a learning. It's time to learn. Like, I didn't know how the recruitment took place for this center. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. This do- in fact, another thing we found, the people in the, that were in the, this is what alerted me, there's a, a predictive tool the federal government uses called uh, hierarchical care, it's HCC, hierarchical condition coordination or something. HCC, it's a, it's a, it's a predictive score. And when you join Medicare, you, there's a score that's generated for you, and they use it for reimbursement and stuff like that, and, and you know healthcare financing. But anyways, we we have those numbers for each person, and the people that joined the wellness program, this particular program, had a higher HCC score, indicating more illness than the reference population. Fascinating, because you generally don't see that. Mm-hmm. People that join fitness centers are the well people, right? You know, other thing I'm just thinking about about fitness centers. If we, you know, set up a fitness center in your in your shop or something, generally the people that use it 
are the ones that just quit their membership downtown where they were paying money every month. Now they get it for free. So there's absolutely no benefit. I mean, no, the, the employer was getting, the, by the, the, the employee paid money to go to the YMCA or whatever. Uh, and now, so, well, you're going to have a fitness center in here. Well, I, that's great. So, it might be a recruiting benefit. For it might example, be a recruiting benefit toward that goal of just reducing employer costs. Nothing there's no happen. ROI. There's no ROI. That that's a surprise. Yeah. Hmm, it makes no, sense. Another interesting thing. I did a study once where they were asking people. This is years ago, where they had a health risk assessment and they asked about smoking status, and they said. Then they. This is right before I arrived. They had an incentive where if your score went down, you would get like $500 off your deductible or something like that. And when I looked at the uh, year after year, I saw one year smoking rates dropped like 20%. Wow, Wow, what happened? And nobody could explain it. And then I would ask it around and said, oh, they advertised that if you had a, if your score would go down, you would have this $500 deduction, you know, or whatever. So people basically just lied. Mm. So you got to be careful. Yeah, you bring up. So you mentioned a couple things there. Uh, one I want to ask about are health risk assessments. There's both the what you typically see are the online self-reporting assessment, but then there's the uh, where the, the the type where you're actually getting real blood samples and um, the biometric type screenings. Are health risk assessments effective in reducing costs? Well, you, you big up a really good point. There's two kinds. One is a self-administered, and one is a professional, professionally administered. And I, uh, and so my answer to the question is, it depends on which one you're going to do. I have a real problem with the self-administered because people don't really know their cholesterol, and people. Um, so people don't really know their cholesterol, and so they may there may be a score that's generated as a result of this, and it may it may it may still be beneficial. I mean, it may say, "Wow, you, you know, you're at high risk for something," but it's hard to take it to the bank and and uh, use it as a metric. And I, now, if it's blood that's actually drawn and blood pressure is measured by a nurse or a doctor. It's there's much more impact because now it's a professionally generated uh, form, output mm-hmm. form, and there's an opportunity to sit down with you and say, "Wow, you know, your blood pressure was 160 over 100, and your cholesterol was this and that, and you, know, you need to do something about it." So, health risk assessment is basically two things. It's it's a it's an instrument to generate to, to gather information, and it's also when it when I present it to you as a, as a patient or a person, it's an educational tool potentially. Well, Jesse, I think you know you need to go to your doctor and you know get on blood pressure medication. So that's all it ever does. But, you know, and to, and to claim that that in itself is causing downstream reduction of healthcare costs is a huge stretch in my mm. opinion. Now, if you have more follow up, but you're actually using it using it as a three-month follow-up and you can watch what happens to people and and you and it's more of an integrated system and you might uh, say hey Je- Jesse dr. Smith uh, you know he's he's next door you know he'll be your primary you know, he's your he could be your primary care doctor and you know you've just been alerted that you're at very high risk for cardiovascular disease he can help you and so now it's that's the thing I was talking about. That's a more coordinated system. Yeah. Does it require to be effective? Do health risk assessments need to have that on-site person? Because a lot of the vendors are selling more phone-based type. Well, that's because they're cheaper. It's cheaper to administer. Well, I mean, and then and then if you say, I mean, they you can do it any way you want. I think to. We talked about the importance of showing impact of your work, and uh, to use just that simple assessment and make claims of great reduction in downstream medical costs 
it, it's it's hard for me to see how that would all work because there are many people down the healthcare line, including the patient him, him or herself, that need to be engaged to make all this other stuff happen. I did health risk assessment on all these people, and, and there were fewer amputations for diabetes five years later. And I'm going to take all the credit for that as a health. As a, I mean, it's just it doesn't make any sense. And again, I think the big challenge going forward in our new environment is those, all the people that are assisting, including the patient himself or herself, in health, in improving health status from what it otherwise would have been, who, how do we decide how to pay people? If there's a lot involved, it's not just one simple pill and everything's fine. Now, if it is, that's simple to do. But usually it's not, especially with chronic diseases. There are a lot, you know, your, your family life, you know, the, your social class, uh, you know, lots of things are influencing people's health. And uh, I gave a talk a couple weeks ago on that webinar, and we talked, we talked about population health strategies, of which wellness should be considered a part. And now a lot of people are jumping on the population health uh, care bandwagon, but what they're essentially doing, whatever they were doing before, if it was case management or um, you know, wellness, they're now calling calling the population health. <laughs> and I say, you know, there's a famous quote from a Chinese politician, Deng Xiaoping, uh, who was after Mao was instrumental in reforming China from a, just a communist socialist system to a quasi-capitalist system. And his quote was, uh, "It doesn't matter if a cat is brown." or black as long as it catches mice. And he he was referring to, it doesn't matter if it's capitalist or socialistic, socialist as long as it catches, it doesn't matter. But the challenge there, I mean, it's a nice analogy, but in our business, you know, what's a cat? You know, and what's brown and what's black? And what's a mouse? And what's catch me? You know, I mean, it's easy to see a mouse in the in the mouth of a cat, and that's 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 okay. One mouse, I can make a metric out of that. But in our business, it's not that easy. A lot what, more complex. What are we catching? Lower healthcare costs. I mean, that's what everybody wants. Obviously, uh, it doesn't just have to be that. You know. Now, you know, the, the federal government under Obamacare is has some incentives to do these corporate wellness programs, uh, but. Uh, you know, and, and I, a good friend of mine, and, um, Sean Sullivan, head of the a nonprofit group called the Institute for Health and Productivity Management, they do a lot of work overseas. And there's no, there's very little interest over in most countries in healthcare costs. There, the interest in corporate wellness or whatever you, is to improve worker productivity, because hmm. the healthcare costs are taken care of by the federal government. By the government, only in this country, he said, is that are people trying to you know, make the corporate wellness program a way to reduce health care costs. And, you know, I personally favor, you know, screenings and having people aware of their cardiovascular risk. I think it's uh, really important. I mean, it's like looking at the back of a cereal box and, you know, it's just a simple, here's how, here's what I'm eating. I mean, I, went to a, I was at a, a place the other day and the vending machines had Cokes and Pepsis and water and stuff, and they had the calorie count right on the vending machine. I had not seen that before. Mm-hmm. It's like informed consent. You know, well, you can do the Coke, Diet Coke for zero calories, or you can do the Coke for 140 calories. I mean, at least you can make a decision. Right. And we need to be aware. I mean, metrics are great you know, if they're understandable. And at an individual level, um, you want to know your blood pressure and, uh, at a corporate level, uh, the wellness vendor or help it, they want to say on the average the blood pressure here is you know one hundred thirty six or whatever it is, and uh, you know this brings up another important point about wellness. When we talk about corporate wellness, you have to understand, you have to know who is actually uh, responsible for the data and the management of these programs. Is it the actual corporation um, or is it a, an outside entity 
that is, they call them covered entities, that is essentially like a physician or a health plan, and they're not really allowed to share individual level information back to the employer. And so if the employer does it, he can look at all the information. Uh, so people are going to be reluctant, I think, to answer honestly if they know. Say, it brings up the whole issue of trust. Trust. And that, that would be another consideration in implementing a wellness program is whoever is having the relationship with the employee and their data, is that somebody that the employee is going to trust? And that's a hugely important issue. Because if the, if the employee, even if there is a, a covered entity that's doing the wellness program, if the employee doesn't know that, says, well, this is sponsored by you know, University X, and they're thinking, you mean the people that sign my paycheck are asking me questions about pregnancy status and sexually transmitted diseases, and some of these things are on these questions, you know. I mean, when I go to the doctor's office, I fill, I fill out some pretty, reve- I answer revealing questions. I trust my doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if it says University you know, of Hard Knocks. And that's your employer. And that's my employer. I'm thinking, wait a minute. Are they trying to? I know why did some work. Are they trying to get rid of me? We did some work for a self-insured employer several years ago, and uh, there was worry, even though there were, there was a covered entity, and I was outside and all that, that the employer would get a hold of this information and start firing people. Mm-hmm. And when they take the blood for the cholesterol and the blood sugar, they're thinking we're doing random drug tests. Right? Yes, that's a common I mean, that, concern, yeah, right? Yeah, so. Um, so we, you know, we, it was led by a physician and after a while they, they said, oh, we trust, we trust you. And, uh, this, the employer may be paying ultimately for the, for this health risk assessment, but they don't get to see that Jesse, you know, has a sexually transmitted disease. Mm-hmm. We, we can say... Two percent of the people have a sexually transmitted disease, but we don't say we can't say who they are, and so that that element of trust is huge, huge, huge. So you have to take care to guard that and also communicate well, so that people understand who has the data, who will have access to data, and also choose carefully because there's some entities. Let's say an insurance company. Your insurance company, generally speaking, is is never going to be a Trustworthy source to your employees. They they just tend to not. Well, I think, but actually, an insurance company typically, legally, is a trusted source. Right, legally, legally, but people don't trust them. Mm -hmm. So you could be a legal, a legal trusted source, a legal covered entity, covered entity, like an insurance company, and they legally can't share individual level information back to the employer. Employer. But people don't believe that's true. Now, if it's Dr. Wilson and his staff, and they, you know, well, okay, I trust him. You know, and like a lot of university-led groups have a higher level of perceived trust. Because you don't want, if you're asking questions about things, you want the, the, the patient, the employer, to answer honestly. Mm-hmm. And if you start, by the way, another thing people do, which I have some problems with, incentives. Incentives for improving your health. I don't mind incentives for participating in these health fairs. Yeah, actually, so okay. let me just pause here a second. Another thing you commented on a while back, and I'd like to ask you a little bit more about, is incentives and disincentives. Do those really work? Well, let's talk about kind of the general idea, mm-hmm. and then we'll talk about if they work and and, and what their future is. I think, um, first of all, I, I personally believe good health should be its own reward. I just don't personally believe that I should be incented to improve my health economically. I think that's an external factor. Um, and if I don't know enough to know that it's good for me to have low blood pressure, uh, that's a huge problem. If I only have low prep blood pressure because you're giving me 50 bucks a month, that's a problem. Because you may stop giving it to me. 
I mean, there may be a point in the future where wellness isn't the hot thing it is today, and it goes away. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, I have a problem with using incentives to improve health. I mean, that's just now. Now, from a from a measurement perspective, I also have trouble with it because, like, when you measure body mass index, which is a measure of height and, and weight, an index of height and weight, or you measure blood, even blood pressure, uh, there's so much variability that. Uh, I may measure your blood pressure today. You know, they call it, they call it white coat hypertension. You know, the mm-hmm. physician has the white coat. It raises stress levels, stress hormones, and your blood pressure is higher in the doctor's office than it is at your home. And so it's artificially high. And uh, it and I may measure it ten minutes later. It may be completely different. There's so much variability. It's when you start doing well. You got you know your blood pressure last time was one. 30 over 90 and now it's 128 over 92 and I say you know that's is that an imp- I mean people will think that's an improvement but it probably isn't because there's so much random error so I did a study once in uh, in Africa actually looking at salt intake and we measured salt intake by measuring salt output from the urinary system and uh, the 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 Individual variability on a day-to-day basis in salt intake is huge, hmm. but so we measured individually. It's all over the place, but the, at the population level, it was very stable. You know, the average the average intake was the same every day. Wow! But the individual vary. So, so in some cases, the population level metrics are much stronger, uh, much more valid than individual level metrics. So, if you say I'm going to, you might do this, if the employer group uh, on the average improves their blood pressure by 10%, maybe we do a group incentive. You know, I like that. Uh, and that way, you know, we are our brother's keeper to a certain extent, and as you know, Jesse, a very small percent of the people are responsible for a large proportion of the health care costs. So, you know, once you have the heart attack or the stroke or the amputation because of diabetes, the costs get enormous. And so it's in all of our interests to help our brothers and our sisters not have that event. So I like the group-based incentives. So the group, group-based group incentives are have provided a more reliable means of measuring whether it's successful. Well, the incentives and the measurement are two different things, but I'm saying the... Uh, First of all, the, the, the group-level metrics are more valid than individual-level metrics. Mm-hmm. And if you want to use the change in those group-level metrics to incent employees, wow, you did a great job, congratulations, you know. It's like your team just got in the BCS Bowl, that kind of thing. And everybody benefits, you know. Like, we don't, we don't pay college athletes, right? But the schools benefit. I mean, it's a group benefit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, I mean, I think those kind of benefits are okay, but it shouldn't be that I give you money to make your weight go down. That, that's just a personal a personal opinion. So, um, But what, I, the, what does the, the data show? I mean, it, is, are, is there an impact if you give a reward for taking a health risk assessment or give a reward for achieving some outcome? There's a lot of people um, doing it, like especially incenting for participation. And the question is, what's the benefit? See, this is an interesting question. Yes, we've increased participation by giving a benefit. It cost us, let's say, $50 per hour, whatever it was. Now, what's the benefit of that benefit? And that goes back to my original issue. What's does a wellness program work at all? Mm-hmm. And what is it, and did it work? Did, if it reduced health care costs by the amount of the incentive, you know, that's a great thing. But did it? And the evidence is mixed. So I have a feeling we're spending a lot of money on incentives, but we haven't determined how to measure if incentives work because we haven't determined how we measure how wellness programs work in the, mm-hmm. for the most part. So if I'm a typical large employer and 
I have a moderate uh, turnover. So I have employees that are going to be here for a few, some years, uh, maybe not their entire careers. Should I be even thinking about implementing a corporate wellness? Is it possible for me to come up with the right goals and actually implement something that is worth the time and money of doing so, or should I just pass on this whole trend and this is just a... Well, I think my advice is to do it for the most um, realistic reason of all, which is recruitment and retention, hmm. in my opinion. And say, because you, if you don't have a program, you may be you may be getting the people that don't like wellness, don't like to work. I'm just saying, just to stay competitive, you probably have to do it. Now, so that's one thing. But I think it's in the interest of the vendors that are running these programs to be a lot more rigorous about how they're evaluating them. Because if, and there's a lot of controversy about this right now, if it turns out they really don't work, they're gonna disappear. Mm-hmm. After a while, the same thing happened with they called used to call it disease management. Everybody was doing it and, it, and I was involved in that. I was, uh, you know, worried about the poor, the, the results eventually of the poor methodology that was being used mm-hmm. to evaluate these things, and eventually all blew up. And you don't hear the term disease management much anymore, right? <laughs> <laughs> In fact, the organization that was the Disease Management Society of America changed its name to Care Continuum Alliance. I'm just saying, things, they have a natural life. Mm-hmm. And wellness, I think, is, you know, they're riding high right now, but there will be a day of reckoning. And the programs that uh, survive will be those who have measured their success, where credit is given, where credit is due, right? But that's pretty sobering when you say, so that you should, the easiest one to target as an objective is just recruiting. That's, that to me says, just go get the cheapest thing I can implement that I can call a wellness plan and then put it on my website. Hey, we have wellness plans. You know, I'm just being realistic. <laughs> yeah. Have you measured any? And, that, and that's, a, that's a very good point. It, that the best one may be the cheapest one because maybe we just are using it as a recruitment and retention. I mean, I'm serious. Mm-hmm. Why? I, I did a study once uh, in Florida where we were looking at immunization rates, and I saw huge. They were they had this immunization proving immunization program. I saw this huge jump in um, immunization rates. I said, "Wow, that's amazing! How did you do?" I said, "Well, we sent out postcard to everybody." I said. I, it's, this is beyond belief that you had that much impact. And after we looked around for a while, it turned out the state had passed a law making immunizations mandatory. Mm. I said, then I said, you would have done better to not send out one postcard. <laughs> as far from an ROI perspective. Yeah, I mean, why let somebody else do the work? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, just, just you know, maybe buy the cheapest program possible just to I say I have a wellness program. I mean, I'm not saying that's that's not necessarily good for health, but it is. Um, it's good. It's a good economic decision. Now, I know from our long-term relationship that you have measured at some companies where wellness, among other population health measures, has made a significant difference on their population health and their costs. Right. When I, what, the, where, where I've seen personally impact is where the wellness program is not outsourced or independent of other things. It's integrated into a, a whole health care system, I mean, health prevention system. I mean, what I was talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. It's like we're all about prevention. Uh, you know, they call it primary prevention, secondary prevention, tertiary prevention. You say... Primary prevention is like before anybody, before people are sick, immunization is primary prevention. Secondary prevention is once you're sick, let's say you have high blood pressure, uh, secondary prevention activities is blood pressure medication to prevent you from going to the third stage, which is the stroke. And so I'm just saying you, 
So what the companies that you and I are, are familiar with have a much more integrated approach. Wellness is not run independently by an independent vendor. Mm. We are, it is integrated. It, it is an integrated philosophy. And it, and it does have an impact on healthcare costs. So, um, you know, what's also interesting about healthcare costs, you know, it's the it's twenty percent of the people are responsible for eighty percent of the cost, and uh, of course they may be different. They're different often year after year, year to year, year to year. But your goal is to you want to keep them. You want to prevent people from having these major events, and that's where broadly conceived wellness. That's what it's all about. Mm-hmm. You know, that's at prevention. That's what it's all about. I mean, I know personally, I. You know, I don't smoke. I work out, not as much as I should, but I do work out. I'm aware of it. I eat well. I try to eat well. I uh, and I, you know, I can't prove it, but you know, I'm a pretty healthy guy. You know, and uh, so, and I think as an employer, I would want people that are taking responsibility for their life, for their health. I know when my mom was young, she said, you know, we always thought that when when we got sick, we went to the doctor and he was responsible for our health. We externalized health care to my doctor. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't, it really never crossed my mind that I was responsible for it. And I think over the next, last, next couple generations, we are with, with you know, uh, fitness, you know, see fitness centers cropping up all over the place. People are seeing themselves as responsible more and more. Dr. Wilson, as we wrap up, I'd just like to hear a little bit about the two organizations that you are uh, involved with. First of all, tell us what Trajectory Healthcare is. Well, Trajectory, it's actually that natural history of life and disease. It's the trajectory of a population. And um, what uh, what we do there, uh, we have a couple patents that reorganize healthcare data, clinical data, uh, electronic medical record claims data, health risk assessment data, all around an event. It's called event-based analytics. And the event may be the day you started the wellness program or the day somebody had a stroke or whatever. We line up everybody on that event day, day one, and we look at before and after that for patterns and trends and predictions, and um, so it's a, a a very sophisticated and easy to use software system to uh, do predictions and to evaluate programs and to uh, generate uh, opportunities for improvement. And we actually like the we, we see more value in going after sick people. I mean, in terms of money, there's more money. Available. Mm-hmm. There's more money on the table. Well, people, you have, obviously, you want to keep them well. Right. So, what we often do for our clients is we look at the migration, like from year to year. You say, well, here are all here's you know, like four groups of people, and what happens to them over time? In, without before we did anything, mm-hmm. what's the natural trajectory of people in, let's say, group one, which is the low risk? You know, they go up to group four, which is the high risk. And some people in group four, they start coming back down again. So you got to know the up and down movement uh, of people, and then we and then and then we have a uh, now let's in, implement some strategies to see if we can change the migration pattern. So that's what trajectory does. Hmm. And then tell and, us about the nonprofit, the Population Health Impact Institute. Well, this we started this about eight years ago um, in response to some of the stuff that was going on in disease management, where there were some pretty weak methodologies, I thought, we thought. And rather than attack them, we said, you should just make them transpa- make things transparent, just like a nutrition label, mm-hmm. basically. You know, uh, so people know how many calories are in your drink. In this case, what the methodology was that you're using, what the metrics were, what's the numerator, what's the denominator. So we have a program called... Um, an accreditation program called Healthcare uh, Transparency and Attribution Program. And we had like 50 people, experts from all over the country, come together and develop standards for what should be transparent. 
we were not making a judgment about the validity of a study design, but only, you know, here, here are the things that you need to, you should be addressing. And if you said I didn't address them, that's okay. Just be honest about it. But what we find is that you know, people generally have not decided in advance what they're trying to achieve. It's all very vague. Well, my wellness program, I wanted to improve wellness. Okay, well, <laughs> we have to define that. Mm -hmm. So uh, we, uh, we are actually re um, having a new version of this program in the first quarter next year. Because I think with this accountable care organizations and Obamacare, things have settled down a little bit. I mean, it, things are moving in that direction. And to make the methodologies transparent is going to be a big deal. We think employers actually are going to start demanding it. Dr. Wilson, where can people find out more about you and your work? Well, for the uh, trajectory, uh, it's called traje trajectoryhealthcare.com. Uh, and, you know, there's, we pu publish a lot. You can look up my name and Thomas Wilson, epidemiology, and you'll find a bunch of stuff. For the, PH, for the Population Health Impact Institute, you go to www.phiinstitute.org. Dr. Wilson, uh, Dr. Thomas Wilson, epidemiologist, founder of Trajectory Healthcare, and co-founder and board chair of the nonprofit Population Health Impact Institute. Dr. Wilson, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jesse. Have a good day. All right, Engagers, that wraps up this episode. We'll provide the information and links that Dr. Tom Wilson mentioned on our show notes for this episode, which you can find at engagingleader.com forward slash WHE4, as in Workforce Health Engagement, Episode 4. And while you're on the show notes page, you can engage with us by providing your thoughts or questions in the comments section, or by clicking the red Send Voicemail button. You can also engage with us at facebook.com forward slash engagingleader or on Twitter where I am at Jesse Leahy. Workforce Health Engagement is a production of Asmodale Communications, a consulting firm that specializes in workforce communications, helping mid-size and large employers attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. In several areas, not only health engagement, but also talent management, benefits and compensation, business transformation, and more. Find us at AspendaleCommunications.com. If you enjoy this series, be sure to check out the leadership podcast, Engaging Leader, where my guests and I share ways to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. You can find both Workforce Health Engagement and Engaging Leader podcasts in iTunes, Stitcher, and on our website at engagingleader.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, Cecily Leahy, our web intern, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, over the long term, a program of the day won't help you boost employee health, productivity, and your bottom line. For sustainable success, you need an integrated approach to workforce health engagement. <laughs>